2: Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, let's say a very good morning to Mr. Henry Smith, Conservative MP for Crawley. Henry, uh, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining me. I I have to say, uh, given that we've now prolonged Freedom Day until uh, July 19th, it makes, I suppose, for quite a decent backdrop that the grey sky has descended upon us and it's all doom and gloom out there.
1: Uh, It does feel a bit gloomy this morning, not just uh, in a meteorological sense, but also uh, because of that vote last night in the Commons to delay easing of restrictions. Uh, I voted against the government because I think with a world successful vaccination programme, we should be starting to open our economy up allow people to get back uh, to live their lives as normally as possible. I represent an aviation community, Gatwick Airport, and the effect has been devastating on that. Yes, We need to get back to normal. Uh, for the sake of our economy, people's jobs, our well-being and all those other health conditions that are being neglected as well.
2: Exactly right and I mean it was a good turnout for the Tories who did vote against it and I think the people certainly listening to this radio station will thank you for doing it Henry um, because I think people misunderstand and, and I think government misunderstands in general the, the, the sort of the wider effects of the lockdown you know not simply the fact that people can't go on holiday but the fact that m- many of your constituents in Crawley will be involved in the airline business in one way or another they might be working at Gatwick in a shop. They might be working in the aviation sector as a maintenance engineer. You know, they might be working in cabin crew. There's all manner of things, taxi drivers uh, that are connected to travel. And it's not just travel out of the country, it's travel into the country.
1: Well, you're you're absolutely right. Um, Travel out of the country uh, actually is worth in normal times uh, about £38 billion to the UK economy, incoming uh, travel is worth uh, about uh, £28 billion pounds to the economy. The travel and aviation sectors employs, uh, or used to employ, over £1.5 People. These are real jobs. These are real people. These are people who are not able to work at the moment. We have a furlough scheme that's coming to an end uh, in September, and if there isn't able to be some sort of meaningful summer of operations uh, that's safe to do so, then I fear many more of those jobs will uh, will, will will unfortunately be lost. And there's a knock-on effect to our economy. Uh, we are global Britain. We're an island trading nation. We should be proud of that. We've just done a fantastic trade deal. Uh, With Australia, um, we are losing £32 million every day by not being able to fly transatlantically um, to the US uh, and get those economic Mm. advantages. So we're really um, at a competitive disadvantage to uh, many of our neighbours who are allowing people who have been vaccinated uh, to fly.
2: Yes. I mean, we're going to hear later on in this hour about the possibility. And again, it's one of these floated ideas out of, uh, out of the government that the quarantine rules that are current may change. And it may be possible to go to some um, you know Mediterranean countries without having to quarantine on return. Um, I'm hoping that's going to happen. Um, but again, the government does this in such a way that it's confusing for people because you don't know whether you can book a holiday. You don't know whether you can, you know, commit yourself and your children and your family to going somewhere, uh, not really knowing what the rules are going to be. Uh, The the real killer for business
1: is uncertainty. If businesses can't plan, uh, then they can't get people back uh, into uh, work, maybe off furlough. Uh, They can't uh, plan their routes if you're uh, a travel uh, company. um, It takes a lead in time and the constant sort of on again, off again, is really bad for business and we do need some certainty. We were told over six months ago that the vaccination programme would give us that certainty. The effectiveness of the vaccination seems to be beyond the wildest dreams uh, that we could have thought of uh, a year ago when uh, they were still in the development mm. phase. Uh, we really are, I think, squandering that uh, vaccination advantage uh, that we have. And I pay tribute to the government for the successful rollout. But now we need to start opening up so we can get back to normal, um, get back to doing the things that uh, human beings are supposed to do, getting together with loved ones, um, enjoying a, a, a break um, and, you know, being able to trade so that uh, we can grow our economy and uh, protect as many jobs and indeed grow as many jobs as possible.
2: Yeah, because in a way there's no point in being... Fantastic at rolling out the vaccine. If it was all for nothing, you know. For me, I don't know whether you're a football enthusiast, but it's a bit like winning the Premier League and then refusing to go into the Champions League as you've qualified for it. You know, the fact is, you know, we got the vaccine, we did it very well, much better than everybody else. But except now, everybody else is taking over uh, in terms of lifting their restrictions, and it seems to me that that the government needs to pivot, particularly when you see stories this morning about the fact that the uh, the number of um, uh, of, of, sort of models that were, that were predicated on the locking down uh, of, of further lockdown until July the 19th, the modelling's all wrong. It's all out of date and it's all based on the vaccines not being very effective. And we can't afford these sorts of
1: uh, almost kind of schoolboy error mistakes like that. These are people's livelihoods and jobs and our economy uh, and other health conditions not being properly treated that are at stake here. Uh, We need to make sure that we are using the advantage of the vaccines to get us back to some greater form of normality. Uh, And, you know, I am truly concerned that the risk balance is out of kilter in terms of these decisions that have been made. And that's why, you know, last night in the House of Commons, um, I voted against extending these restrictions. Um, The effect it's having on um, individuals' um, ability to enjoy themselves, uh, to be able to meet up with loved ones as well, is something that I think we're storing up mental health problems as well.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And what do you make of the other story this morning, Henry, about the the idea that, This may drag on a lot further than than we know, that even if July the 19th does happen in the sense that many restrictions are lifted, there will still be a kind of imperative for some people to continue to work from home. Um, You know, offices will still remain barren and empty. Cities will still be pretty deserted. You know, I mean, that I don't think is a recipe for, for health in a nation, is it?
1: Well, I think there will be some longer-term changes as a result of the pandemic, and some of those may be more positive. I mean, you know, less people crowded onto trains going into London, which is my experience or was my experience um, in the past. Um, You know, there will be some longer-term advantages, better work-life balance, perhaps, but um, we cannot sort of have our society operating in this completely artificial uh, manner that it has been now for 15 months. And this sort of, again, uncertainty of... You know, what's going to happen next? Our restrictions going to come back on again uh, is really damaging. uh, And we do need some certainty. We promised the vaccination programme would deliver that. And we now need to see that.
2: And are you satisfied uh, as a a member of, of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, Henry, that the data that they're saying they're following here, is actually convincing because I'm not so sure. I get asked this question an awful lot uh, by many people, particularly listeners, but also a lot of guests that I have on as well. They say, you know, please, if you do get on some MPs, ask them if they, if they are buying this data against dates argument because I'm not sure what data they're following now. Well, we
1: were always told from the beginning that we need to follow the data. We need to follow the science. And that works both ways. Um, when it's bad news, um, that needs to inform what we do. But when it's good news uh, and things are improving, uh, there's a sort of quid pro quo. We now need to sort of open up. And so, you know, we either follow the science and the data or we don't. Um, and it's no good to sort of follow it to lockdown, but not follow it. Uh, to ease restrictions. You know, I pay tribute uh, to this Conservative government for delivering Brexit, for doing uh, around 70 trade deals, most recently the Australia one this week. Um, And, you know, those are fantastic achievements. The vaccination programme, as we've discussed as well, but I'm also a conservative because I believe in freedom uh, and individual choice and people using their judgment and their responsibility and pragmatic solutions. And right now, I think when it comes to coronavirus restrictions, we have drifted from that.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Stay with us, Henry, if you would. I've just got a couple more questions to ask you uh, on the lockdown, on the coronavirus, on the way forward. Henry Smith MP, Conservative MP, for Crawley, uh, one of the MPs and Tories who voted against the government last night. So uh, we congratulate him for doing that, for standing up uh, for the people of this country who don't think that there is any reason uh, or data uh, or convincing um, excuse, really, to postpone the opening of the economy.
0: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on
2: Talk Radio. Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are talking to Henry Smith, Conservative MP for Crawley, uh, which is, of course, right in the heart uh, of the air, air travel industry because that's where Gatwick is. Um, Henry, a couple of things to, to mention to you. I'm just looking at the study this morning that says that, uh, that these Perspex screens that we've all been sort of walking around for the past, best part of the last, I don't know, nine, ten months or maybe more, um, might actually not be the right idea at all. I mean, it seems extraordinary that uh, after all this time, suddenly somebody... I mean, a lot of the stuff that, that we've been saying on talk radio is now starting to come true. And Julie Hartley Brewer was saying this morning, you know, you know, we were called COVID deniers, we were called reckless, we were called, you know, killers, you know, but an awful lot of what I would call common sense questioning of some of these things that were put into place now appears to have been correct.
1: Well, I think there's been a lot of COVID hyperbole, if I can uh, put yeah. it like that, uh, and uh, people... Um, becoming armchair experts um, overnight uh, as to uh, what the uh, best way uh, to approach the pandemic was and a lot of uh, hindsight as well. Uh, but, uh, y- you know, um, the main thing is, is that uh, we have as many people as possible now uh, largely immune uh, from uh, COVID-19 infections and even mutations of the virus. It's coronavirus. That's what they do. Yeah. They mut- just like the flu does. And I suspect we'll be living with COVID for the rest of our lives. We'll just have to have a rolling vaccination program, particularly for the most vulnerable and elderly, um, as we go forward, as we do uh, with the seasonal uh, flu. So, um, you know, I think we need to get back to some sort of reality. I am concerned um, that people have been scared witless uh, by a lot of irresponsible media uh, and uh, reports that have come out. Um, over the uh, preceding uh, 15 months. And that's why I think if you look at some opinion polls still, there is still quite a reticence uh, to people to get back to normal. Also...
2: Yeah, but uh, what's that, Henry? uh, Hang on a second. There's been an awful lot of irresponsible advertising by the government, you know, uh, which we've carried on this station. Um, in which it's been said things like you know uh, three, three, one out of three people that are passing on coronavirus don't know they've got it you know it might be you you know you might be going out you might be killing your granny I mean Matt Hancock himself said well, that he might you might be killing your granny
1: well it's it's worse than that because that advert in particular is one that I um, object to because it yeah, says but that's a government it, ad Henry it doesn't even say doesn't even say you might be spreading it I think the exact words that I object to are people are going around. Who have COVID 19 and are spreading? Yeah. It. That isn't necessarily the case. Um, so I do think we need to get this better balance and perspective uh, of um, the risks associated mm. with uh, COVID 19. We cannot keep our society and our economy effectively uh, closed down. Um, and, um, you know, expect uh, to be able to uh, recover. We do need to start getting, uh, I think, a more pragmatic
2: attitude. Yeah, And also, I think what you need to also look at, Henry, is the questions that are being asked by the polling companies, because when the polling company says, you know, would you like to see more lockdown restrictions in order to save lives? Most people are going to say yes, because they don't want to sound like they're horrible people. But of course, if you answer the question a different way, Would you like to see more lockdown restrictions so that it cripples even more businesses and more people uh, aren't able to get access to the NHS? They're going to say no. You know, well,
1: it's, it's, it's the classic uh, loaded uh, question. Exactly. Um, you're absolutely so right. So I'm,
2: I'm not buying it. I mean, look at, for example, these figures that were released just the other day. Uh, the, vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, 96% effective against hospitalisation. AstraZeneca, 92%. 14,019 cases of the Delta variant, uh, only 166 of whom were hospitalised. So it's less than 1% of people now, who are, uh, who have got this um, uh, formerly known as the Indian variant? Um, less than one percent of them have gone into hospital, you know, and so uh, numbers of people dying under under uh, under ten single figures practically every day. You know, um, I think the government is responsible for all the scaremongering.
1: It's interesting also, it's it's called the Delta variant now, but they still call it the Kent variant, so I'm not quite sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, I know. Not, I,
2: know I didn't sure, know that.
1: But that, that that's, that's probably a debate for another day. But yeah. um, you, you're, you're absolutely right. And what I'm concerned about, um, I chair a parliamentary group um, on blood cancer, um, and my concern is um, that the... I hope I'm wrong on this, but I, I have a horrible feeling in the medium to long term more people will die of non-COVID... Uh, related conditions because of the effects of pandemic restrictions cancer heart disease diabetes mental illness illness including uh suicide um as a result of those restrictions than 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 covid will so we we do need to at the risk of sort of being trite and, and boring at repeating this we do need a better risk perspective
2: yes and finally henry um what do you make of dominic cummings is it time he got another job
1: well, I just I just think this is a man who is motivated uh, by spite and, um, you know, it, it, I don't think it's gaining... Uh, it's kind cracking. of
2: sad, isn't it, that he's, that he's kind of ended up like this? It, 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 it is. Uh, you know, he was somebody who um, I think was a real
1: talent in government. I think he was uh, one of those who um, helped really make the argument, the positive argument for Brexit, uh, which we saw in the referendum uh, five years ago. But I, I think there are... I don't know the man, but it seems like there might be some personality flaws yeah. there, which um, have led him to be very, very spiteful. And yeah. I think I think most people see it for what it is. I mean, I know it's Westminster Bubble Entertainment at the end of the day, um, but uh, I, I think it is motivated by by spite. Yeah,
2: but, but very, very sad, really. Yeah, but also, I mean, even if Boris Johnson did say that he thought Matt Hancock was effing useless, you know, we've all been in situations, particularly if if it's a difficult and stressful and and you're under pressure type situation, and somebody that you work with doesn't do something that you wanted them to do. We've all called people effing useless, haven't we? I certainly have. This was exactly
1: a conversation I was having with somebody uh, last night in that, you know, if you look at people's sort of exchanges on on WhatsApp, it tends to be fairly, shall we say, colloquial in, 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 in language often. Yes. Um, and uh, maybe a bit of Anglo-Saxon verbiage thrown in as well. And, you know, it's the way people sort of interact when they're messaging each other. Um, I don't know the veracity um, of that story. Um, but I think, you know, when you look at those messages, um, I think, you know, we've all
2: we, we've all probably got them on our phones. But also the speed with which we now communicate, you know, there are times you answer things so quickly, um, and then you kind of go, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that but you know you move on to the next one you have another 25 messages to answer in the next five minutes before you have to do something important you know well, it,
1: exactly. I actually turned off my WhatsApp notifications a few months ago because. Uh, oh, I don't have any oh, notifications. I, I, it, it
2: <laughs>
1: I, I dip in every couple of couple of hours. Yes. No, I actually say <laughs> so to just people for my, just for my sanity.
2: Yeah. No, I say to people, I'm not. I, I'm not having any notifications on Twitter, WhatsApp. Because there's too many of them. If you really want to get a hold of me, just ring me. Because it's amazing <laughs> how few people actually use the phone to make a phone call. Yeah. You know. Times have <laughs> changed. I think. Maybe... <laughs> Indeed. Well, listen, Henry, thank you very much indeed. Good to talk to you. Uh, perhaps we'll get you in the office and in the studio one of these days behind a Perspex screen or otherwise. Uh, Henry uh, Smith, Conservative MP for Crawley, voted against the government last night. One of the good guys, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you very much. The
0: Independent
2: Republic of Mike Graham on
0: Talk Radio.
2: Um, I don't know where the summer's gone. Hopefully it's going to come back. Uh, but we might actually get a bit of a glint of light at the end of the tunnel because we're about to speak to Paul Charles, Chief Executive of the PC Agency, a travel consultancy firm. Let me just read you a couple of quick tweets. Though. Justin says this. Um, Henry Smith speaks a lot of sense and he didn't vote for the extension, but I'm never keen on the dismissal of armchair experts. People can read and let's be honest, haven't we had enough of actual experts? Well, you know it's interesting. Charles Walker MP um, has uh, been talking yesterday in Parliament about the possibility that we should in fact elect the members of SAGE, that we should not be driven and guided by these maniacs, these behavioural experts, these psychologists, these people who are not even experts in virology, not even experts in epidemiology, but are in fact experts simply in behaviour. And I mean, how can you be an expert in behaviour? Susan Mitchie, who makes her way onto Plank of the Week this week, by the way, uh, member of the Communist Party or former member of the Communist Party, a woman who thinks that it's a great idea to keep masks forever, social distancing forever, a woman who thinks that she alone can predict how people will behave and that she can actually come up with policy for governments which will make people behave in particular ways. I think that's quite creepy, don't you? Oh, three, four, 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 nine, nine, one thousand. Let's talk to Paul Charles, because this morning on the front of the Daily Telegraph, return of holidays if you are vaccinated. Could it be true? Paul, very good morning to you.
3: Good morning, mate. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you too.
2: Well, listen, this is a turn up for the books, isn't it?
3: Yeah, um, it's certainly true. Um, The government is discussing this behind the scenes. It's possible they could announce something on the 28th of June at the next milestone review into mm. the whole traveller testing regime that that it is their intention. And of course, they're still way behind where America are and where Europe is. Both of those regions are letting their double jab citizens uh, travel and in fact not have to quarantine when they return unless they're coming back, obviously, from a red zone. So it's progress for the UK, but we're still behind where the others are.
2: Well, we are. But what exactly will the government be thinking here? Because, Paul, you've been talking to them for many uh, months, backwards and forwards, on on, on sort of, um, you know, cause and effect of, of what would happen if somebody went somewhere and then came back. You know, we saw what happened in Portugal. You know, they promised mm. us when they called off Portugal, moved it into the amber section instead of the green section, and that was to safeguard June the 21st. That clearly wasn't true. Uh, lots of people have now had to pay lots and lots of money to come back early to avoid quarantine and people are basically, I mean, and a lot of travel companies have now just kind of ground to a halt because they don't have any clue whether July the 19th is going to help them or not
3: Yeah, there's an enormous amount of distress, Mike, in the travel sector from airlines to tour operators to travel agents to hotels who have no visibility officially from government on what the next few months look like. Mm. And so it's understandable. There's also a loss of confidence among consumers who've given up on the traffic light system in the main, because they don't trust it after what happened with Portugal. The government didn't stick to its own guidelines. So what we need to see is the government putting confidence, injecting confidence, uh, as much confidence in the travel system as they've injected jabs into people's arms, as the Prime Minister keeps saying. Let's see them support the sector urgently because we know the vaccine is working. The Prime Minister said it himself the other day. Therefore, they should set a date for the 19th of July or late July and say from that date, if you've been double jabbed, then you can travel anywhere that isn't red and not have to quarantine on your return to the uk if they said that now people would start booking for travel from that date and cash would start flowing back into the travel sector which is what's needed. yes
2: but of course it would be discriminatory wouldn't it because people who haven't been double jabbed for example or not jabbed at all um would they be able to join in as long as they could take a test or or uh, and here's a supplementary question without asking you too many questions would the double jab mean you wouldn't need to take a test either
3: The double jab would mean you wouldn't need to take a test going into a particular country unless they really needed it. But most countries are dropping that requirement. Well, most of them
2: are now. I mean, Spain's not asking for that, is it?
3: Yeah, nor is Greece. Um, So, you know, lots of countries are starting not to ask for that. Mm. Um, Of course, there may still be a test needed when you come back to the UK. I think the UK government still want to be doing a lot of testing for, you know, under their genomic sequencing programme so they're checking for any future variants so I don't think it's going to eradicate testing altogether that will still be a core part of the government strategy but I think most people who've been double jabbed would take would take that they would say as long as I don't have to do five tests to go to Malta and come back and test a release I'm happy to do one well it's the cost as
2: well isn't it I mean if you've got a family of four it's still at the moment even if you've only got to do two tests it's, it's a thousand quid
3: yeah, it's, it's far too expensive and that's what's putting the mass market off. There are a lot of people travelling at the luxury end of the market, but that's only a small part of the travel sector. It's the mass market that's been put mm. off and that's why the big operators and airlines are in, are in some trouble. To answer your other question about... Um, those who obviously can't take the jab for medical reasons, for example, um, then they would still need to be tested. I think that's going to be a core part of travel right. for the next couple of years.
2: Yes, but what I'm saying is they wouldn't be obstru- obstructed from going, is, is no. what I'm saying. I mean, like, for example, you might be 25, you might have, you know, uh, obviously nothing wrong with you, but you haven't had uh, a, a vaccination yet because it hasn't reached you.
3: Yes, that's right. No, testing is going to be a core part of your travel checklist uh, over the next two years, I reckon, especially for some countries. If you look at um, Asia, parts of Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, Australia, it's going to be some time before they open up. They're not going to open up this year. It will be 2022. Mm. So although things are looking brighter for the end of July onwards, uh we won't be able to go everywhere there'll still be some parts of the world which sadly are out of bounds due to the fact they haven't rolled out the vaccine as quickly as we have or because they can't afford to roll out the vaccine or because their infection rates are still too Mm. high
2: i mean i've been saying to people in the last week or two notwithstanding the fact that we knew they were going to postpone June 21st, that there will come a time, surely quite soon, where the government starts to see that there's a bit of opposition, which is growing to an awful lot of what they're doing. And I wonder whether um, the launching of a legal challenge by Ryanair and some of the airports in this country Um, have sort of had a bearing on this decision if it is made because the airlines have had enough they're sick to death of it the airports have had enough they're sick to death of it and there is no real data I mean they're asking for what similarly was being asked by the hospitality industry you know where's your evidence show us why you can't let this happen
3: there's huge frustration among the airlines and airports they're losing shed loads of money They're, they're doing this as a last resort personally the way the government works, I don't think legal action is going to work. The government always find a way to mm. uh, win most legal cases. Um, and I'd rather see the money putting into helping those in the sector who really need it, I yeah. think, to survive, because a lot of agents and operators can't survive. But it shows the frustration in the sector. And the other thing is, of course, the government is, is not acting because of legal pressure. It's acting because it's realising it's being left behind because the US and the EU are letting their citizens travel freely once they've been double jabbed Mm. and the government simply can't hold this position forever. They're going to have to change things later in July.
2: And what are you hearing about the USA uh, at the moment, Paul?
3: Well, I don't think we'll be seeing the USA open up until the end of July or early August, Mm. uh, which is slightly later than many of us expected. That is partly because um, the Delta variant has increased in the U S and I think they're being a little more cautious, but it's also because um, the US really, like the UK, want to try and reduce their infections as much as possible and get the vaccine into as many arms as possible before they start to open up their borders. That seems to be yeah. a common policy position both in the UK and the US. And
2: also up. the difference to the US travel industry is that they've got a massive domestic travel industry, which is worth an awful lot yeah. more probably than its external uh, people that visit from outside.
3: Yes, it's huge. But of course, don't forget people don't just travel for holidays. They travel for seeing family. And there's a lot of of pressure. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure on on ministers on both sides of the the Atlantic at the moment to open things up so that families can see each other as close to Independence Day as possible. Mm, I don't think it's going to happen for the 4th of July, sadly, but end of July, early August, America should be opening up to the UK once they've hit their targets on vaccine rollout.
2: Okay, Paul, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Paul Charles, Chief Executive of the PC Agency, a travel consultancy firm. And again, you know, yes, of course, people would like to go on holiday. And yes, that's very important for all sorts of reasons. It's not just So people go and have a jolly go to Lanzarote and get absolutely completely and utterly um, you know wasted for six days uh, and on the seventh day you know you get yourself home in a uh, in a sort of ambulance no it's not about that it's about the massive numbers of people involved in the business involved in the industry and if the government finally are seeing sense here then hopefully that will spread into other areas uh, of business as well. I don't want to see people uh, staying at home forever. I don't want to see cities deserted forever. Although, uh, if it's anything like it was this morning, trying to get into work, I've never seen the road so busy. I've never seen the road so completely and utterly destroyed by that idiot, Sadiq Khan. Uh, He seems to be doing his best to completely and utterly bring London to a standstill. The plank.
3: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Time to say a very good morning to Ms. Helen Dale. Helen, how are you? Good morning, Mark. How are you? I'm actually feeling <laughs> tip-top today. I've been slightly perturbed this week. I was a bit angry on Monday. I was even more angry on Tuesday. Wednesday, I started to kind of uh, level off a bit. And today, I'm back to normal, uh, happy as Larry.
0: And Whoever
2: being cheerful. Is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got no reason It's very to be...
0: humid here. Yes. Very, very humid.
2: Yes. I mean, I'm looking out, it looks a little bit like sort of Singapore uh, in the middle of October
0: yes it's very humid it's cloudy here but he, and really humid but still quite warm not as hot as yesterday yesterday was really properly hot yes. so much so i was just telling your producer that my little cat was trying to chilly was trying to find the coolest part of the house and hide in it it was too much for no you have got to
2: feel sorry for the animals when it gets that hot yeah. you? they're not yes. they're not keen no my uh, my dog doesn't like the heat at all i mean he's just he just he just flops and becomes mm. a completely useless lump
0: but yeah, cats, I know, are evolved in an environment that was hot, domestic cats. Yes. So that's why they always seem to be sitting on your heater and that kind of mm. thing. But British shorthairs do have very dense coats. Yes. And they have a limit. And Chile found hers yesterday.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> she right. got
0: very warm.
2: Now, before we move on to uh, what delights we can look forward to receiving from Australia as part of this new trade deal... Why the why the hell? And I'm sorry to, to give Julia a hard time. I'm not really giving her a hard time. She kept referring to this bloke this morning who's the Consul General, I think, or whatever it is for Australia in London, as Your Excellency. I found that slightly perturbing.
0: I'm not sure there is anybody in Australia who would refer to any authority figure from any country as Your Excellency. <laughs> and I did used to work in the Australian Parliament and I have seen many politicians from both sides of the aisle give speeches or press conferences yeah. in in the mural room in Parliament House in Canberra and I never, ever heard that language. I have I mean, no I, idea to whom she's referring, yeah, but that's I mean, I, I
2: always thought that the Australians had a very healthy disregard for politicians. It's one of the it's things an I inten- like
0: about it's a It's an intensely egalitarian culture. So blowing smoke up someone's bum, excuse my French, but that's what it is, because they've got a gong or a fancy handle or b- a blue blood or that kind of thing, has never been part of Australian culture. I mean, my father was quite posh and uh, he has had hes dead now he had the right to use a minor title and he tried to pull rank when he first came to australia and got told by an immigration official um i'm sorry i'm a card-carrying member of the liberal party which in australia is the conservative party and you just must never do that in this country people will think that you are out to lunch yes and dad never did it again
2: no, that's good.
0: <laughs> so and, that's and, a and life another, lesson.
2: <laughs> and another one before we get, we reach the the, the the trade scenario is, I mean, Dominic Cummings, you must have encountered people like him in your career. Um, I think it's a bit of a shame that he's turned out the way that he's turned out. This kind of slightly obsessive, um, incredibly bitter and twisted individual who thinks that he's more powerful than he really is. Um, could have left a decent legacy, but instead is kind of ruining it for everybody. Um one of the things that I find fascinating is that Boris Johnson is the sort of person that, whenever people accuse him of things, it seems to increase his popularity. You know the fact that he's he... Captain
0: Teflon. Yes, yes. Yeah. if Keir no, Starmer Captain it... Hindsight, yeah. it's yeah. Boris is Captain yeah. Teflon.
2: But it's but it's not even just that. It's the fact that actually people like it. They, it's not even that they don't like it, but they don't care. It's that they actually like it. I mean, they quite. I think most people I've spoken to are rather pleased. Uh, that he refers uh, to his secretary of state for health as being effing useless. I mean, I think we've all worked with people like that, and we probably all called somebody that at some point or another. It may have been in a fit of peak, it may have been at a at a bad moment, you know. But it's not yes. it's not a hanging offence, if you know what I mean.
0: No, I mean, I sus I do suspect that some of Boris's popularity does have its roots on in, in the fact that uh, he says what he thinks although he is enormously advantaged over other people who try to do the same thing because he's funny. yeah, And it's been my experience in working for politicians and being involved in politics, certainly in Australia, but I think it exists here and it may have even come from the UK originally, uh, this idea that someone who can, who can brush it all off with a light touch and a joke seems to just be able to get away with anything. Um, by the same token, whilst I don't think Boris... is is a bad person. I mean, my, my view very much with Boris Johnson is that he has this effect on people in the London metropolitan bubble, for want of a better word, where one of the reasons why they can't oppose him effectively is because he just makes them lose their minds. Yes. He has that effect, whereas Dominic Cummings... I mean, I've used this expression before on the Independent Republic, but he really is a walking exemplar of it. He was the kind of, he was the type of boy who nobody wanted to dance with in high school. Yeah. And unfortunately, whilst that character flaw can be modified as people grow up, as they get older and learn to engage with others, some people never manage to do it. And I have encountered people like that in my life that are just, they're not bad people. I'm, I'm not saying this is the thing. You have to be measured with this. I don't think Dominic Cummings is a bad person, but the problem is the difference between him and Boris Johnson is that Boris Johnson, he's like, you know, he's foul stuff. Yeah. You exactly. know, because thou art virtuous, dost thou think that there shall be no more cakes and ale? You know, it's just uh, and, you know, Falstaff is always the most popular character in, in the Henry plays of Shakespeare. And that is why. Yes. Whereas Dominic Cummings is, comes across as the opposite as the opposite.
2: Yeah. And it's incredible, isn't it, that he would spend this much time um, sort of getting nowhere because he's kind of getting nowhere i mean i was interested to hear a, a sort of a, a, a commentator this morning saying that he he's kind of creating a framework if you like for when there is an inquiry that people will have the view that it was all a bit chaotic but i think we kind of knew that anyway
0: i think we knew that anyway the care homes fiasco to me is indicative of chaos You don't make a mistake that stupid unless there are problems organisationally with response to a pandemic. And we now know they responded to they didn't respond to a Corona. They didn't plan for coronavirus. They planned for flu. Uh, The NHS, the sainted NHS was probably put too high on a pedestal. Mm. So, yes, it did become protect the NHS at the expense of people in care homes, that kind of thing. I mean, you can't deny that. It's impossible no. to deny it. No, although Hancock say.
2: says, of course, that only 1.6% of people who went back into care homes from hospitals um, were, uh, the, were were actually infected with COVID. I don't know whether those are, those are correct figures. He says they're Public Health England figures. I have no reason to disbelieve him, but it clearly wasn't mm. a very good idea. But weren't you also no, astonished, wasn't. as I was, Helen, yesterday, when Hancock gets up in Parliament and basically says that if you've been offered the vaccine uh, and you decide not to take it, Effectively, the NHS doesn't have a duty of care to look after you.
0: An extraordinary yes, this thing is, to say. This, is, this is very, very dangerous in a universal healthcare system that is meant to be free at the point of use. Yeah. Although it is dangerous in any healthcare system that is meant to be universal, even if there is some element of co payment or if you have to pay first and then claim back, mm. or even if it's part private like the Australian system or the wholly private like the Singapore system, they're still universal like the nhs they're right. just structured differently yeah. and it is very dangerous to engage in that kind of rhetoric because the next step is oh we're not going to care for smokers then and then an- or we're not going to care for obese people, right. or we're not going to care for people who go to dodgy countries and get yellow fever. And mm. uh, th- this kind of thing has a kind of snowballing effect and mm. is genuinely dangerous in my view.
2: Yes. I found it extraordinary that he was even willing to say it in such a public forum. He uh, yeah, he was well, getting quite a bit of support for it as well. And there's a whole yeah, kind of, you know, and the, and the same goes for the compulsory vaccination plan that they've got for care homes, which we're going to talk about a bit later, um, that so many people are quite happy to go along with it.
0: It's, yeah, authoritarian public health has always been a problem. And, I mean, Christopher Snowden at the IEA has been talking about this probably for a decade. And it is certainly true that some of the lack of preparation... I know Public Health England has become a whipping boy because they can't use Microsoft Excel and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. But some of the problems that were generated with Public Health England were because they weren't focusing on the bread and butter of public health, which is things like epidemics and pandemics mm. and so on and so forth. And they were busily going around telling everybody um, you know, not to smoke or restricting the size of bottles of um, e-liquids that you can put in in uh, your electronic cigarettes, the vaping, they call it juice, the vaping fluid and that kind of thing. This is not what they should be doing. It's silly, Mm. particularly as they'd already acknowledged in the case of vaping, that it was a very effective way to quit smoking. Mm. I'm happy to admit that I used it to quit smoking. So there you go. Mm. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean that's the thing. It just seems to me to be extraordinary. Let's talk a little bit about this trade deal because there's been much excitement about it. Uh, I've been describing it as a kind of backdoor trade deal because it's a trade deal that's been signed without any real actual detail of what's in it, which is an interesting way to it's do. It's more business.
0: like a. It's a more like a memorandum of understanding. Yes. It's not quite. I mean, there is an This is a, a sort of a legal, a subtle legal point, but I'll say it here because I think it's worth highlighting. Mm. in in the law of contract an agreement to agree in the future isn't binding you have to actually agree there has to be offer and acceptance acceptance and intention and all the things that you
2: need consideration and all that
0: and consideration Mm. well you don't need consideration in scotland because of roman law you need consideration in england wales and australia different legal systems uh you can have what's known as a nude pactum in scotland so no consideration. Well, good luck. But so that's I've interesting. In yes,
2: you probably only have it outdoors.
0: <laughs> with no with no alcohol, telling yeah. the Scots they can't drink is just like that. Really blows me away. Well, it's really also goes. like My telling them we've must got. Be rolling.
2: I mean, we've got the big England Scotland game coming up, and to tell Scotland football supporters not to come to London, uh, I'm afraid that ain't going to work either.
0: No, that's just not going to work. And in fact, the Scottish football supporters are so lovely, you know, and they play bagpipes and they sing and they've got character. I mean, they're the kind of people you actually want to support your yeah, game. Yes. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. So, um, so, the, so it's very much like a memorandum of understanding, mm. which is kind of not an agreement to agree. It's a bit better than that, but there is not a lot of detail. So any comments I make have to be pursuant to the fact that it, there isn't a lot of detail. The clear things are they're introducing free trade in agriculture very slowly over 15 years as they gradually increase the cap on the amount of tariff-free agricultural produce that comes into the UK, particularly beef. Mm. And I honestly did expect that that would happen because despite what people have been saying, and there have been people on both sides of the aisle misrepresenting this, saying oh no it's too far away and australian uh, australian farmers have other markets and so on and so forth um it's not going to knock a hole in british agriculture they're forgetting that before 1973 the united kingdom sourced nearly all of its food from australia new zealand and canada and refrigeration and storage and freezer storage and transportation has come on in leaps and bounds since 1973 so yes Australian agriculture, it is a behemoth. Eight of the ten largest farms in the world are in Australia. There are farms in Australia that are larger than entire countries, Mm. small countries admittedly, but larger than entire countries. So, yes, it is a behemoth. I knew that that was going to have to be staged or otherwise... Uh, the farmers would have here would have been overwhelmed. I mean, I often say I support unilateral free trade, but I would not introduce it all at once. No, And so I expected that. And so how how,
2: how much will this be worth to Australia as a part of a sort of percentage of their exports then?
0: I don't really know because we don't have enough detail. People are bandying figures about, and I've seen, you know, 1% and 10% and 5% all sort of floating around. But because we don't have the detail, we don't have the text of the agreement. I've got nothing I can do a legal analysis on. And I've got nothing I can go to my friends in DFAT and say, what do you make of this? What do you make of that? Because I don't have the text of the agreement. Nobody does. Um, but it will mean that there will be a degree of return progressively over time for Australian agriculture to have entry to the UK market. Mm. Now, to a degree, this has already started with wine, and but that happened for a different reason. What happened with wine is China basically imposed extraordinary tariffs and import controls on Australian wine. But because Australian agriculture is completely unprotected, there are no tariffs, there are no there is no protection, it's very efficient. The the vintners just pivoted very smoothly to exporting that wine that Mm. was not wanted by China to post-Brexit Britain. So I'm pretty confident what you'll see there with the wine is the price of Australian wine will drop. And that will be quite quick. That will happen fairly quickly. From the Australian end, something that is beneficial, and I can talk a little bit about this from personal experience. It became unless you had an enormous amount of money, quite difficult in Australia over in certain periods because of the uk pivoting towards the european union not only to buy a jaguar at a remotely reasonable price but you couldn't get parts for it you Mm. couldn't get original jaguar parts and that problem will finally go away and that's a good thing i mean my father was one of these people who was a jaguar enthusiast and he wanted he always wanted a jag in the traditional british racing green colors and he could afford it to buy the, the car new but he said one of the reasons why he never did it was he said they have made it so difficult to source parts, you have to get them on what's known as the aftermarket mm. all the time. Yeah. And it really was very irritating. So that would be beneficial to people in Australia who are Jaguar enthusiasts. Yeah.
2: And also it will be beneficial to, to Jaguar Land Rover who are here. Listen, Helen, we've got to cut it short today. We've got to run because we've got lots going on, lots to do. Thank you very much indeed. Helen Dale, uh, writer, lawyer, political commentator there.
0: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: Let's say a very good afternoon to Chris Mitchell, Chairman of Park Lane Healthcare. Chris, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Mike. Hi. Thanks very much for joining us. I suppose I should, I should start off with asking you whether you agree with Matt Hancock, really, and, and if so, why?
4: I do agree with Matt Hancock. Um, I mean, the world has changed, and uh, it's not, we're not a country that likes to be uh, dictatorial. We're a democracy. But at the end of the day, uh, we've got 300 staff. Uh, all bar about two or three tops at last count have taken the vaccine. And the the edict that we're going to be saying to everybody new is if you want to work in healthcare, as far as we're concerned, get the vaccine. And I feel very, very strongly about it. You know, times have changed. You have to adapt accordingly. And uh, it's a very real problem. And fortunately, we don't have it at Park Lane. We only had about 13% dissented at the very start. Which was that the national average was thirty five percent uh that was about six percent within a few days. I did a round robin tour of all our homes to meet everybody individually and talk through their concerns and we've now got a couple of people left and and that's where we are
2: and those people who have not been vaccinated have they given you a reason
4: yeah they they there's there's strong reasons um but I mean everybody's got a strong reason um if it's health if it's health related, then that's fine by us uh providing it's proven but if it's but if it's health related or it's pregnancy that's that that's fine but any other reason i'm going to take some convincing but once already on board of course we live in a society today where you can't say boo to a goose so you know,
2: you can't say boo to me, Chris. Don't worry, I can take it. You know
4: but, <laughs> yeah, you know what it's like, though. It's a protectionist sort of sort of world that we live in today. And that's fine. You know, we all, we all need people to stand up for us. But I feel very strongly about this. Yeah, one. but who's
2: going to stand up for people who don't feel comfortable taking it? Because, as I said, there are plenty of young mm-hmm. women that I know who have said to me, They're not certain that there's any suggestion that there's a problem with fertility by taking it. They're they're by no means convinced that there is. But as long as there's a a smidgen of doubt, surely you're within your rights as a young woman to say, I don't wish to put my fertility at risk. Therefore, I don't wish to take it. Would you let somebody like that work for you? Well, no. I mean, I would say I would say to those people going forward.
4: I mean, my argument would be, yes, you are within your rights, but go and work in something else.
2: So you would you so you wouldn't employ somebody who had those concerns? Uh, no. If, if they from 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 now on our company policy is if people come on board with
4: us then they've got to agree to take the vaccination or have have had it taken because you know we live in a in a well my responsibility ultimately is to the residents in our care home and the staff and the way that you keep them protected is to take that stance. You know, we were offered many, 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 many tens of thousands of pounds to take people in uh, without the correct checks at the very start of COVID. We turned everything down because ultimately our responsibility was to our residents and staff, and therefore to keep that going, going forward, then we need to have everybody
2: vaccinated. And we've got 300 girls who completely agree with me. And what about the uh, the the residents of the care homes that you've got? How many of those have you got? Uh, about at the moment, about two hundred and eighty-five, two hundred ninety. And are they all double jabbed? Yes, they are. So surely they're not in any danger, are they? Well, that's the theory. I mean, that's what the
4: scientists tell us. But you know, you, you're not in any danger if it's a hundred percent against the va- you know the vaccine is a hundred percent effective. But we know it's not. I mean, I'm sixty-two well, it's years not, old. It's not, the, the,
2: the Pfizer vaccine is ninety-six percent effective.
4: Yeah, but it's not. It's not a hundred percent. And so, well, nothing, well nothing's a hundred
2: percent, Chris. Is it?
4: Well, nothing is, but, you know, it's your grand who's with us or your granddad or your parents or whatever. Um, you know, take that as a compliment saying granddad for you anyway, but you know what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, my granddad's uh, yeah. long gone.
4: <laughs> and mine too, sadly. But um, but the, the bottom line is is that, uh, yeah, nothing is for certain in life, but when I'm looking after old, vulnerable people and I look them in the eye and I look their, their kids in the eye and say we're going to do our utmost to look after them, I mean it. And so, therefore... You know, if there's the ways if there are ways in which I can influence that and make that promise more underlined, then that's one way I'm gonna do it. And that is by saying everybody working partly in healthcare, uh coming on board has to take the vaccine and we're about ninety nine point something percent uh vaccinated as a, as a staff right. team. And you said a,
2: earlier that if somebody's pregnant, they don't have to be vaccinated, is that right? <laughs>
4: No, because, I mean, at the moment, I mean, have been i mean, I'm, I'm not bang up today because your call came out of the blue because I'd stopped doing a lot of interviews because the ship has sailed. You know, I think we should all move on. I think we, we well, have we'd to. Like to.
2: we'd like to. We'd well, like to. We would, like, we would like to. The ship it, hasn't sailed tired, yet because you know. they're only taking people on uh, certain, uh, under certain conditions. So there's lots of other ships that are coming behind, behind them.
4: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what was your question? My question
2: inter- My question was, you said earlier that if somebody was pregnant, that that might be a reason why they wouldn't have to get vaccinated.
4: Yeah, and that, what I was trying to say, I think, was that was that the the last the last research that we we did and that we we uh, took on board was that was that it was still a, they were still advising uh, ladies who were pregnant uh, not to uh, get the vaccine. To my knowledge, that's still the case. Right. If it's not the case, then our, our ruling would stand.
2: But well, why do you think, think that, that is the case, though? No idea. I'm not a scientist. I don't well, know. I would assume it's because it might harm the unborn child. No. Yeah, I would guess that's what they're saying. Yeah, right. Well, so wouldn't it? Be, I'm, I'm wouldn't, so wouldn't it be? It so wouldn't it be natural then for somebody who might be thinking about having a child to then say, "Well, if it's yes, not sure safe it for would. people to take because they're pregnant, if I'm going to want to be pregnant, maybe it's not yep. safe for me to take either." Yeah, that's a fair comment, and that, and that has saying... been and that has been said.
4: Yeah, well, that's a fair comment. And if that's if they're planning on having children, then I guess they'd be planning to to work elsewhere other than with Partly in Healthcare.
2: Yeah, but you because, can't discriminate against people like that, Chris. Can you? I
4: can't. I, I can't. And I mean, you know, this is where this is where the law comes in, and so on. Because you could be. You know, I mean, if, if the government through, through. if the government tell us, Mike, Mike, you asking the question and then wait for the answer. You know, if the government tell us that that's what they're going to do, I'm I'm completely in agreement
1: with
2: them. Well, yeah, but the problem with compulsory. It, it orders from the government. Is it's the, not compulsory order. They don't have to work. People don't have to work in the same in that place. You know, you have
4: a choice about your job. You know, thank God it is that way. Everybody's got a choice about what they want to do for a living. And if that's what they no, want to do for a living, that's not true, actually, then, Chris.
2: Yeah, no, because yes, no, you, you, are... yes, you, but you cannot put what I would regard as unnecessary constrictions on people. For example, you could not say that you mm-hmm. wouldn't employ somebody who suffered from MS, could you? No you could not say you would not employ somebody who was a type 1 diabetic could you no not at all Neither so, so, you so why can you say that you can't you won't employ somebody who hasn't had a vaccine because the the bottom
4: line for us is whether they're an, whether they're a risk of infection to our residents and and they are my ultimate responsibility well you do
2: know of course that as you've said earlier the vaccine does not stop the risk of infection.
4: We do know that, yeah. So therefore,
2: but, by having yeah. had the vaccine, you don't guarantee that that infection won't happen.
4: No, you, you don't guarantee. It, so you, see where, time so time you, time you time see where you see where it's to difficult. Me- I can see where it's difficult, and, and life is difficult, and, and employing people is difficult, and, and working in today's society is very difficult. But, you know, what we have to do as a as a company, if if, if anybody's watching this, who's, who they're contemplating their, par- their parents going into a care home, I'd want to know that that company had a chairman like me that was saying to them, they come first, they come first, and we're gonna do everything in our power to keep them safe. And one of those one of those ways is that we want people to be vaccinated who work at Part lane Healthcare. And I think it's an honourable stance. I think it's a noble stance. It's not something we want to do. None of us expected to be in this position to play God. But but unfortunately, we are having to. And, you know, we can't wait for the day when all the doors are thrown wide open and we get back to some form of normality. Mm. But this thing, we've been told we've got to live with it. And so whilst still we've got to live with it, We've got to take every precaution we can to keep our residents safe and our staff safe that have worked the damn socks off all this time, um, lar- largely on, un- uh, um, you know, unapplauded, uh, less so in social care than in the NHS, I might add. And for me, they're absolute heroes. And they've looked after our folks brilliantly. And it's our responsibility to ensure that that protection is maintained to the best of our ability
2: and what are the visitation rules currently chris because i've forgotten what the government regulations are on that the the
4: visitation rules at the moment are they seem to change by the day um you know if you go on our uh, on our facebook pages etc we talk about them i don't want to say exactly what the rules are off the top of my head because i'll be frank with you i don't know where they sit as at as at this well moment. if I, let me
2: put it to you this way if i've got a relative in one of your care homes can i come and yeah. see them yes you can come to see them if you follow the various rules
4: vaccinated people uh, up to five up to five people in the, in the close family um and in the
2: same what well, inside the room in the room
4: yeah in, inside designated areas where they're wearing ppe and uh they follow the correct procedures they come in and they take lateral flow tests we get the result back and all of that sort of thing.
2: So they've got to be tested, uh, they've got to wear PPE, what sort of masks and gowns or what? Uh yes, to
4: yes, I would say so at the moment. Yeah, we're still following guidance. Um, the only reason
2: guidance. I'm asking Chris is I get a lot of calls from people who say that they have great difficulty in understanding the rules yep. and the capabilities and the inabilities they've had to see their relatives and they find um, that yep. some care homes are not really helping them to do that.
4: I think that I think that care homes to an extent, have had a have had a, a rough ride over all this because often the government have come out with advice that's differed from the local authorities where our care homes are situated, because their advice has often gone against the government, and and we are under contract with these local authorities who pay us fees for for some of our our clients, and so we have to listen to them, but we have to listen to a myriad of different guidance on. Um, You know, on on all the rules surrounding COVID at the moment, and it does change daily and everybody puts forward a fantastic case uh, representing whether relatives should be allowed in freely, whether they shouldn't be. It's a very difficult tightrope to walk and it's heartbreaking at times. So you don't let people in who
2: haven't been vaccinated, in other words.
4: We know we they can be following the same the same rules, but what we've asked people on Facebook, me personally, is I've asked our younger audience to please consider all of this until you've been vaccinated. I've asked our families to allow vaccinated members only to visit our folks at the moment, but it isn't compulsory. I'm asking them you know, as the chairman speaking to them personally and hoping that they will follow that rule because all of us haven't got to wait a lot longer now. I believe that, you know, end of August... Yeah, we've
2: been hearing that for a long time, Chris, haven't we?
4: Well, we have, but, you know, everybody's been learning on this. You guys are great at jumping on the bandwagon and winding everybody up. What bandwagon is that, Chris?
2: Pardon? What bandwagon is that?
4: Any bandwagon you wish to choose. Well, which, but, bandwagon, know,
2: might... which bandwagon are you accusing me well, of jumping
4: on? Well, the bandwagon I'm on about is that you wanted to put care homes front and centre uh, of it all. And we've wanted that, some more recognition under social care for a long, long time, but not in the way that, that everyone's done it. You know, you, you, some of the, 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 the 24-hour news outlets... Piers Morgan, who I think is a great broadcaster, but he thinks he's been doing us all a favour, as do you know the likes of the 24-hour broadcasters. But a lot of these people have put us front and centre for the wrong reasons, because everybody now thinks and did think during the height of the pandemic, don't go into a care home, you'll catch COVID. But the reality is, is that everybody, you know, everybody who didn't obey those rules gave our folks at other homes, I might add, COVID, Rather than us being the the source of COVID, but yet you know it's been well, wasn't it, it becomes,
2: the case? Well, wasn't it the case that people who were working in those care homes were also giving people COVID?
4: That's that's possibly that's possibly the case. I'd like to think that none of that. But happened. why weren't you
2: I testing haven't. them? Sorry, why weren't you testing them? Testing who? Testing the workers. Testing the well, we do all the time. Well, you I do mean, now, that, but you weren't doing it first of all, were you?
4: We were do- we were doing it from the minute that we had the facility to be able to do so. so. whose who's fault time, is it?
2: Whose fault is it that all the, the people who died in care homes died in care homes? Then whose whose fault is it? Yeah.
4: What are you why, what are you trying to lead me into? here, to slagging off of the government.
2: I'm now asking now. you a question, Chris.
4: Yeah. Okay. Whose fault was it what, that, that people that were allowed in care homes? No. Died? Who's, no. Say- whose
2: fault? You no. Know, we're told that an awful lot of people died in care homes. Whose fault is that?
4: I would say some of it lays at the fault lays the fault of the government discharging them from hospital. I'd say so. Matt Hancock
2: says that accounts for 1.6% of, of it, according to Public Health England. I, I I wouldn't agree with that. I would have thought it was a lot higher than that. I would have thought it was a lot higher than that. All right. Um, well, so if some thought lies to the government, where else does the thought lie? i would have i would have said
4: that you know there'll be there'll be certain care homes that probably didn't follow the the guidelines as, as well as others but i would have thought they're in the minority but the trouble you've got is that you could have one person go into a care home and it gets around the care home and before you know where you are you could have 30 40 50 people
2: with it i mean did you, you lose did you really... lose many residents in your group
4: sadly out of out of all the people we had uh, of the 15 months it's been going on so far We've probably had 12 or 13 months COVID-free in all our homes. We had probably a four to six-week spell in two homes. And across those two homes, sadly, we lost, I believe, three people.
2: Yeah. That's quite a small number, isn't it? So, it's so, a very small Do you think it's been exaggerated then, this this business of people who've died in care?
4: Well, Chris Witte said at the start of all this, I remember him saying on the TV one of the very early interviews, he said, look, I'm not wanting to let you know that just because you're 80, you're a goner. And that's the very words he used somewhat wryly. Uh, and, you know, from what we, we, we sadly lost three people, it's three too many. But that's pro- that was probably three out of when those outbreaks were in our homes, probably three from uh, probably 70 or 80 people that, that got symptoms of COVID and a similar amount of staff. That's how it can rip through a care home. But, you know, it did prove that Chris Whitty was right. And that and that, a lot of them had no symptoms. A lot of them had mild symptoms. Some had worse well, symptoms.
2: It, tr- it proves but- that an awful lot of people that got COVID didn't die as well.
4: Absolutely,
2: you know, yeah, which is what I've. Well, been yeah,
4: saying. but that's back to the press Yeah, but all you guys do is talk all the doom and gloom. All the I, time. I don't. I don't think you've been. I'm listening not saying to me, you, Mike. Like, I, you think, think I mean,
2: me I, I don't know that. whether you've ever listened to my show, Chris. But I, I I'm very far from doom and gloom. Final oh, question okay. for you, Chris. No, well, That's
4: why I don't know. I haven't listened to your show. Well, before.
2: you're obviously missing out on something that you should be not missing I'm out bit, on. You know, I'm obviously join you know, the revolution, mate. For heaven's sake, how much do you pay your average social care worker in your homes? How much do they get paid?
4: Average, average pay. Well, what is average pay? Because you take into well, account... Uh, an
2: average, average is, is adding up all of the people together and dividing it by the number. That's the average.
4: So much, so much. Yes, I know what the average means okay. in mathematical terms. Oh, Mike. good. You just you asked
2: know. me what it meant, so I've just told you.
4: Yeah, OK. All right. Well, our 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 carers, our carers some of them in areas where we only get state-funded fees are on minimum wage, where we get private fees. Many of them are on a, on a lot higher than that.
2: Like how much? like it's
4: variable from anything up to 9.50 an hour
2: or something like that and then senior errors and so on okay all right chris well listen i appreciate your time thank you very much indeed you need to lose that chip on your shoulder though about the journalism in this country because if it wasn't for the journalists in this country you'd be in a much worse place i can tell you that chris mitchell chairman of park Lane healthcare
3: talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent
2: republic of mike graham on talk radio